Welcome to the Tech Meme Right Home for Friday, August 5th, 2022. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Amazon wants to acquire the company that makes the Roomba robot, or as it's known in my family, Vroom. We finally know the legal arguments both sides are making in the Elon Twitter case. Does crashing semiconductor demand prove we're in a recession or not? And of course, the weekend long read suggestions. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Amazon this morning announced plans to acquire Roomba maker iRobot for $1.7 billion in an all-cash deal. Colin Angle will remain as iRobot CEO, quoting TechCrunch. The home robotics firm, best known for pioneering the robotic vacuum, was founded in 1990 by MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab members Colin Angle, Rodney Brooks, and Helen Grenier. Twelve years after its founding, the company introduced the Roomba, a brand that has since become synonymous with the branding selling more than 30 million units as of 2020. Brooks and Grenier have gone on to found and lead several other companies, while Angle has remained on board as CEO, a position he will maintain post-acquisition. Amazon, too, has been aggressively tackling the robotic space in the decade since it acquired Kiva Systems, though the Amazon Robotics division is focused solely on its warehouse fulfillment play. More recently, the company has made small steps into the home with the launch of Astro, a cheery bot that lacks the Roomba's single focus. Amazon and iRobot have actually had an increasingly close partnership over the past several years through Roomba's embrace of Alexa functionality and use of AWS servers. Angle, too, has often spoken about Roomba and home robotics generally as a kind of connective tissue for the smart home. The home of the future is a robot, he noted in an interview with TechCrunch, and the vacuum cleaners and the other devices are hands and eyes and appendages of the home robot. Ultimately, this smart home of the future isn't controlled by your cell phone. If you have 200 devices, you're not going to turn them on by pulling out your cell phone. We need a home that programs itself and you just live in your home, and the home does the right thing based on understanding what's going on, end quote. iRobot has, however, found difficulty recapturing the Roomba's success, but not for lack of trying. It has experimented with several different home robot services, from cleaning gutters and pools to mopping floors and mowing the lawn. The latter arrived in the form of Terra, which has been put on indefinite hold during the pandemic. That news came in April 2020, along with word that the company had laid off 70 employees comprising around 5% of its global workforce, end quote. Yes, and I would point out iRobot stock is another one that is down about half from its all-time highs. Sometimes line goes down, and when line goes down enough, it becomes a bargain for somebody. And considering our recent conversation with Jason Del Rey, note this quote from Ron Miller, quote, Under Andy Jassy, the company appears to be making more strategic acquisitions. This one comes on the heels of Amazon buying one medical, end quote. But also note this tweet from Raul Paul, quote, With Ring, Alexa, and now Roomba, Amazon tracks everything that happens inside your house, even who visits you. This is all about getting data on you. Google Nest, too. Homes were your last data sanctuary as you put your phone down, but not now, end quote. I think this one is going to be majorly challenged, or at least majorly scrutinized, by regulators. But then again, maybe that's the point. A sort of test case slash trial balloon from Amazon to see how far they can go right now. Twitter has filed a response to Elon Musk's counterclaims, calling them factually inaccurate, legally insufficient, and commercially irrelevant and that they in no way justify ending the merger deal. 
since Musk's counterclaims have been under seal until later today, I believe. This is our first look at the legal arguments both sides are making. Quoting Axios, What we learned, Musk is leaning heavily on the idea that Twitter misrepresented key user metrics, including monetizable daily active users, which Twitter denies. Musk, Twitter says, tried to claim he was hoodwinked, Twitter's language, by Twitter into signing the $44 billion merger agreement by asserting that Twitter breached its merger agreement by stonewalling information requests. He also claims that he has the right to walk away from the deal if Twitter was miscounting the number of false or spam accounts per Twitter's response. Musk attacks Twitter's process for the number of false or spam accounts based on his own calculations, which Twitter argues is unreliable. Twitter said Musk's response to its lawsuit includes, quote, repeated mischaracterizations of the merger agreement specifically around the metrics Twitter provided, end quote. In fact, I can't resist quoting from some of this response, at least the first part, because you really get the sense that Twitter's lawyers are having a lot of fun writing this, quote, According to Musk, he, the billionaire founder of multiple companies advised by Wall Street bankers and lawyers, was hoodwinked by Twitter into signing a $44 billion merger agreement. That story is as implausible and contrary to fact as it sounds. And it is just that, a story imagined in an effort to escape a merger agreement that Musk no longer found attractive once the stock market, and along with it his massive personal wealth, declined in value. After spending months looking for an excuse to get out of the contract, Musk claimed to terminate it, explaining his supposed reasons for doing so in a July 8th letter to Twitter. When Twitter sued to enforce its rights and expose the weakness of those reasons, Musk spent weeks coming up with more supposed reasons, the counterclaims, which offer up an entirely new set of excuses for his breach. The counterclaims are a made-for-litigation tale that is contradicted by the evidence and common sense. Musk invents representations Twitter never made and then tries to wield, selectively, the extensive confidential data Twitter provided to him to conjure a breach of those purported representations. Yet Musk simultaneously and incoherently asserts that Twitter breached the merger agreement by stonewalling his information requests. As explained below, and will be demonstrated at trial, the counterclaims are factually inaccurate, legally insufficient, and commercially irrelevant, end quote. Something tells me... This is not going to go well for Elon at trial. The stock market opened down this morning because the job numbers came out this morning and they were good. Way more good than expected. Twice as good as expected, in fact. Which you would think would make the stock market go up, except for the fact that the stock market thinks this means that maybe we're not in a recession. Which, again, you would think would make the markets go up, but doesn't because that likely also means that the Fed may have to keep raising rates to cool the economy down, which, one more time, you would think would make the markets go up, because there was a time when they were rooting for rate hikes to cool inflation or something like that. Are we in a recession? It's something that we'll talk about on this weekend's bonus episode, but among the other weird things about the economy right now, Tech is clearly in a recession, or at least seeing weakness in its businesses. The assumption would be that since tech is so integrated into all of the things now in the modern economy, shouldn't that be a leading indicator of weakening everywhere? Or not? Maybe the recession is just localized to tech? Perfect example now of the mixed signals we're getting from tech about the economy. From this Bloomberg piece, basically, the fundamental building block of the modern tech economy is screaming recession because it's showing weakness. Quote, 
World chip sales growth has decelerated for six straight months, yet another sign the global economy is straining under the weight of rising interest rates and mounting geopolitical risks. Semiconductor sales rose 13.3% in June from a year earlier, down from 18% in May, data from the global peak industry body showed. The current slowdown is the longest since the U.S.-China trade war in 2018. The Three-month moving average in chip sales has correlated with the global economy's performance in recent decades. The latest weakness comes as concern about a worldwide recession has prompted chipmakers like Samsung to consider winding back investment plans. Semiconductors are key components in a world that's increasingly reliant on digital products and services, particularly during the pandemic when a lot of work and schooling was conducted remotely. Chip sales started to cool as central banks began scrambling to raise interest rates to combat spiraling inflation and Russia's war on Ukraine, and prolonged COVID lockdowns in China prompted a rapid reversal in the international outlook. A Bloomberg Economics Global Tracker shows the prospects for the world economy have deteriorated rapidly this year, coinciding with chip sales beginning to slow, end quote. So again, canaries in the coal mine here or not? But also, might demand slowing ease some of the supply chain issues we've been seeing, but wouldn't that also be bullish? I don't know, y'all. It's a crazy old economy right now. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. 
A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Time for the Weekend Long Read Suggestions. First up, another in our now-continuing series of people writing essays debating the use case for crypto, actually asking back and forth, is there a use case? I recently shared a couple of pro-crypto cases, some cautiously optimistic ones, but this one today from Jay Pino takes the opposite side. He makes a bunch of points, but one that caught my eye the case against wallets as proof of identity on the internet slash metaverse. Quote, There are some important differences between SSO using Google or Facebook and doing it via an Ethereum wallet. One is that in crypto, there is no easy backup plan if you lose your private key. Once the key is gone, you've now lost your ability to log on to all of the services where you use that wallet. Think about how many times you've clicked on forgot your password and now try to imagine not only not having that as an option, but also that instead of just forgetting your password to a single service, you've now been permanently and irreversibly locked out of every account you use online, email, social networking, your own banking and investment accounts, you name it, gone. This is the promise of universal SSO using wallets. Now, wait a minute, some will say, this isn't entirely true. You can set up a multi-sig wallet, which is a type of wallet that can be accessed using a combination of people rather than by a single person alone. For example, you can set up a two of three multi-sig wallet that allows access as long as any combination of two of three specifically chosen people can still access their private key, or three of five, or four of six, or five of ten, or whatever. That way, even if someone forgets or loses their private key, access to their accounts isn't lost forever as long as they have a few family members or friends on the multi-sig wallet. But now you have a new security problem to replace the old one. Every time you want to do anything with your wallet, you need to coordinate with the other members of the group to sign your transactions together. This is annoying and time-consuming, especially if you're not all in the same time zone. So you'll be tempted to relax the multi-sig ratio to something like 4 of 6 and maybe like 2 of 6. But now you've created another problem. If you get drunk at the Christmas party and manage to piss off two of your friends at once, you may lose your entire life savings overnight. Or alternatively, maybe you and all of your multi-sig friends get drunk together at the Christmas party and lose the slips of paper containing your private keys, at which point the wallet is either forever inaccessible or immediately drained of all of its funds by whoever managed to steal all of the private keys. Or maybe one of your friends dies, and his partner has no idea where he kept his private key, transforming your 3 of 5 de jure multi-sig into a 3 of 4 de facto 1. Or maybe it turns out that instead of all of your friends keeping their private keys secret, they've all sent their private keys to their single most trustworthy friend, and then that friend's house gets burglarized and you lose all your funds. This is actually, by the way, effectively how Axie Infinity lost $600 million, end quote. Then TechCrunch reached out to an artist to see how artists are feeling about all of the recent excitement around Dolly and AI-generated art. Quote, When someone can, at the click of a button, generate artworks of anything, emulating any style, creating pretty much anything you can think of in minutes, what does it mean to be an artist? I think the scariest thing about this development is that we've very quickly gone from a world where creative exploits such as photography, painting, and writing were safe from machines to a world where that's no longer as true as before. But 
As with all technology, there's very soon going to be a time when you can no longer trust your own eyes or ears. Machines are going to learn and evolve at breakneck speed. Of course, it's not all doom and gloom. If I were a graphical artist, I'd start using the newest generation tools for inspiration. The number of times I've been surprised by how well something came out, and then thought to myself, but I wish it was slightly more insert creative vision here. If I had the graphic design skills, I could take what I have and turn it into something closer to my vision, end quote. CNN has a long piece explaining the whole obsession on the part of Western governments about Chinese tech, especially Huawei's. In short, Uncle Sam feared that Chinese tech could be used, and probably already was used, to spy on and potentially disrupt U.S. nuclear arsenal communications. Quote, Among the most alarming things the FBI uncovered pertains to Chinese-made Huawei equipment atop cell towers near U.S. military bases in the rural Midwest. According to multiple sources familiar with the matter, the FBI determined the equipment was capable of capturing and disrupting highly restricted Defense Department communications, including those used by U.S. Strategic Command, which oversees the country's nuclear weapons. While broad concerns about Huawei equipment near U.S. military installations have been well known, the existence of this investigation and its findings have never been reported. Its origins stretch back to at least the Obama administration. It was described to CNN by more than a dozen sources, including current and former national security officials, all of whom spoke on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly. But multiple sources familiar with the investigation tell CNN that there's no question the Huawei equipment has the ability to intercept not only commercial cell traffic, but also the highly restricted airwaves used by the military and disrupt critical U.S. strategic command communications, giving the Chinese government a potential window into America's nuclear arsenal. This gets into some of the most sensitive things we do, said one former FBI official with knowledge of the investigation. It would impact our ability for essentially command and control with the nuclear triad. That goes into the BFD category, end quote. Finally today, an entry from the history hat, the history of LEDs. LEDs originally only came in shades of red, since they're based in laser technology. Thus, a lot of the stuff that you see in old films and pictures of, say, NASA's Mission Control Center, or even, you know, the NORAD room in the movie War Games, it was all, you know, sort of red or monochromatic blinking lights. And then George Crawford came around and created the LED technology we know and love today. Quote, the breakthrough that allowed Crawford and his team to go beyond Holonyak's red LEDs to create very bright orange, yellow, and green LEDs was prompted, ironically, by Bell Labs. A Bell researcher who gave a seminar at Monsanto mentioned the use of nitrogen doping to make indirect semiconductors act more like direct ones. Direct semiconductors are usually better than indirect for LEDs, Crawford explained, but the indirect type still has to be used because of band gaps wide enough to give off light in the green, yellow, and orange part of the spectrum. The Bell researcher indicated that the labs had had considerable success with ZNO doping of gallium phosphide and some success with nitrogen doping of gallium phosphide. Bell Labs, however, had published early experimental work suggesting that nitrogen did not improve GASP LEDs. Nonetheless, Crawford believed in the promise of nitrogen doping rather than the published results. We decided that we could grow better crystal and the experiment would work for us, he said. A small team of people at Monsanto did make it work. Today, some 25 years later, these nitrogen-doped GASP LEDs still form a significant proportion, some 5 to 10 billion, of the 20 to 30 billion LEDs sold annually in the world today, end quote. Thank you. 
this weekend. Bonus episode number one will be another kitchen sink episode. Actually, dining room table episode, really. Alex Kantrowitz came to my house again, sat down at my dining room table, and we recorded in person again. It's going to be released as a crossover episode on my feed and on his podcast feed simultaneously. We talk a lot about Meta and Mark Zuckerberg and the Metaverse and earnings and such, but also, as I say, we get into the question of, are we in a recession or is tech just in a recession? Then Sunday, we have another Portfolio Profile episode, and this is a special one. This is a company that is launching right now, later this month. They make a very fundamental tool for programmers and developers, and so in their last alpha sprint before launching to the world in a few weeks, they want people to do the final dogfooding with them. So even if you don't care about the Portfolio Profile episodes, if you're a developer, listen to this episode and try out StashPad. It is a unique chance to help shape what we hope will be a game-changing product. Try it out, get in touch, tell us what you want to see added, tell us where you want to see the product go. Looking forward to that. We're heading to an Airbnb in the Poconos this weekend, and the Premier League starts in a matter of hours. Football is back, and the first game of the season is Arsenal's first game. I can't remember being this excited for an Arsenal season in at least a decade. Might we be actually good again? If you're not into English football, I encourage you to consider jumping on the Arsenal bandwagon this year. They're a super young team. That's the whole thing about them. Arsenal went back to the drawing board and reinvented themselves with youth. They're the youngest team in the league, full of really exciting, genuinely likable kids with a ton of talent. Seriously, jump on this bandwagon. We're not a club owned by the Saudi royal family or other sovereign wealth funds. We can't just you know, roll up the Brinks truck and buy whatever player we want. We're a team with an illustrious past, always known as the thinking person, the educated person's team to support. This would be the equivalent of buying low, buying early. Join this bandwagon. I think it's going to be a fun one. Talk to you on Monday.